to Slow and Steady, the podcast where you get to follow along as we build products in public. Each week, we'll give you an honest peek into our lives as we share our struggles, our wins, and everything in between. I'm Benedicta, and I'm feeling amazed. And I'm Benedict. Today is October 25th. This is episode number 157, and I'm feeling excited because we have a guest on. It's Geoff Roberts of the all-in-one membership software Outsetter. Hey, Geoff, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for, for having me. Uh, and I know you want a, a feeling. I would say I'm feeling uh, particularly hopeful today. Um, oh. <laughs> you know, we've been we've been working on my startup for uh, six years now. We just turned six years old. And one of the things that's been increasingly fun for me is as the product has matured, our ability to help our customers has just increased um, sort of with the maturity of our product. So I feel like as of late, um, we've been able to help a lot of people in, in really deep ways, and I'm hopeful to see that continue in the future. Do you feel that that connection to your customer is what keeps you going? Do you enjoy kind of getting to know them and being part of their, of I guess, their startup lives or their businesses? Yeah, absolutely. That's half of the fun um, for me. We have a we have a revenue model where um, we basically make a 1% transaction fee on all of the payments that our customers process. So in a weird way, we're sort of like a fractional investor in all of our customers' businesses. And we really um, sort of feel that. Like we have a lot of customers we've worked with for years that we see sort of toil away to bring their products to life. And then all of a sudden they start to succeed and uh, it's it's very gratifying for me personally to see founders get to that point or get to the point where they are default alive. All those sorts of milestones um, we sort of live through with them, which is cool. I guess before we, because I, I want to follow up on that, but for the listeners who do not know what Outsera is, could you tell us what problem it solves? Yeah, Outsetta is a all-in-one tech stack to run uh, either a SaaS or membership style business. So the, the basic premise of the product is whether you're building a SaaS product or a membership site, really any sort of recurring revenue business, you typically see all the same software tools used in the context of those businesses. You need subscription billing to charge your customers. You need a CRM uh, to store your prospect and customer data. You need email marketing tools to communicate with your customer base. So Outsetta is just bringing all those tools that are commonly used in these businesses together in a single platform. And the real benefit is speed to market. So rather than uh, a founder you know, needing to integrate five or 10 different tools just to launch their business, they can focus as much time as possible on building their product, kind of connect their product to Outsetta and have a, a stand-up subscription business uh, very, very quickly. So a parallel a lot of people have latched onto is we're sort of building Shopify, but instead of for e-commerce, we're building it for SaaS and membership businesses. Yeah. So you're saying I don't have to, I don't have to code all those fun integrations. I mean, that's what I live for um, yeah, <laughs> as a <yeah>. developer. <laughs> that that's a that's an interesting part of our story for sure. So uh, when we started, we were a hundred percent focused on an audience of developers and people launching SaaS businesses. And one of the things we realized, um, not as quickly as I would have liked, is we were really trying to change the predominant behaviors of developers. Uh, and we were trying to get them to adopt this um, you know, platform that, that we had built rather than integrating all these best-in-class tools. 
And even when developers would come to me and say, I recognize this is not the best use of my time, they would often choose to do it anyways. Um, so one of the things that we sort of discovered a few years into running out Seta is the all-in-one and fully integrated nature of our product is actually that much more valuable to a less technical founder that does not have the perfect skill set to integrate all these tools. So we really kind of moved into um, selling to, to sort of no-code founders uh, in a pretty significant way. That was really the first major impetus of our growth. Uh, and then sort of recently as the product has matured and become more uh, competitive with the point solutions that we compete against, we've kind of seen developers come come running back for whatever reason. So we have kind of a customer base that is split between a very technical audience and a very non-technical audience, uh, which is kind of interesting. Do you think it's because your product has gotten more complete or more known, or do you th or do you feel there's a shift amongst developers realizing that kind of mm -hmm. low code, no code is is something that we should have in our tool belt to add on to the skills that we already have? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think to be fair, uh, developers are demanding customers, right? They they know technology. <laughs> they know what they are. They they know technology. They know. I'll what's make this out there. myself what, because it's. They know easy. what they're looking for. <laughs> Um, so I think in our in our early years, um, the the hard truth, whether we want to admit it or not, was the product just wasn't mature enough to really compete against um, the point solutions that we compete against, uh, particularly in the eyes of a developer. That has since changed. I think the product is a lot more mature, a lot more competitive, and that's part of the reason developers have come back. Uh, but I think the other part is exactly. Uh, what you mentioned increasingly, certainly over the course of the last two years, I've basically gone from getting like laughed out of the room when talking to developers about no code tools to an awful lot of developers saying, hey, if I can use a no code solution, I want, I will. Um, so both. So how I'm trying, don't you have any questions, Benedict? I don't want to like hog the mic. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I, just keep going. I, I'll just keep going. It, it sounds like you have a. You have a train of thought you want to follow through. <laughs> I have, yeah, I do. I do. Um, no, so so, how did you get the idea to start? Yeah, so um, the idea for Outsetter was born out of a previous SaaS company uh, that I worked out with my now co-founder. His name is Dimitri. Um, he was the, the CTO and co-founder of that business. I was um, sort of the first. I was the marketing head, uh, but sort of the business user within the context of that company. And we were bootstrapping a SaaS business. And I was kind of coming to Dimitri and pulling on his shirt sleeves and saying, you know, we're at the point now where we need to get serious about a real billing system. Uh, we need HubSpot for marketing automation. We need Zendesk for support. We need Salesforce as a CRM. We got to integrate all these tools and sort of build a, a, a real world modern tech stack, if you will. And Dimitri is an engineer and kind of a stubborn guy. Uh, and we would go out and we'd look at all these tools and we'd look at, you know, what we need to do to integrate them and make them talk to each other and whatnot. And Dimitri just came back and said, you know what, we're still such an early stage business. I think these tools are overkill. I think they're expensive. I think they're going to only be fractionally used. I'm going to build a very basic homegrown tech stack. Um, and he did this across several software categories. This is not something we would recommend, by the way. Um, but and, and this is this is ten years ago, uh, at least before the technology uh, 
was as good as it is today. But we built we built a very basic homegrown subscription billing system. We built a very basic support ticketing system. And long story short, we ended up using a bunch of these very simple homegrown tools until the company was at about $6 million a year in revenue. So we sort of realized these very basic tools served us well. And when we were both ready to move on and work on a new new business, we said, you know what, if you're an early stage uh, SaaS founder, there isn't any platform that gives you the basic tools that you need out of the box. There is a huge opportunity cost to a developer taking the time to integrate all these tools and build all these systems. When these are really table stakes functionality that every SaaS business needs. Why don't we go out and sort of recreate that basic tech stack that we created for our own use and make it available to other companies? So that's where the idea came from. So you're you're kind of getting a lot of these services that you would pay for individually and then you're just paying for them once. Correct. Yeah. And you were mm-hmm. saying that they pay a percentage of their revenue, but is there like is there a the fixed monthly fee on top of that or how is your model? Yep. There is a fixed monthly fee. Um, So the product starts at $39 a month, and then there's always a 1% transaction fee on successfully processed payments. But the overarching idea and what we've heard from our customers over and over is we're bootstrap businesses. By definition, we have no money. (laughs) So we we need your subscription fees to be as low as you can possibly afford to keep them. And that's still our, our pricing model today. For $39, you're getting email marketing, CRM, help desk, reporting, this big suite of tools. We actually don't even make money on the subscription fees. We're basically just covering the costs of delivering out Zeta. The upside in our business is entirely based on the payment volume that our customers process. So our upside is sort of directly linked to the success of our customers, which is interesting as well. And you were saying like you worked at a startup, but that was not your startup. You were an employee. I was an employee. Yeah. My now co-founder, Dimitri, uh, co-founded that previous business as well. Oh, okay. So he he is a serial <laughs> serial founder then, I guess. He is, yeah. yes. Yep. Uh, but this was your first product as a founder? Yes. How did that how did that feel? Or how did that change? Change who you are. You know what I mean, like how did that change life for you? Um, I think I've always had an entrepreneurial streak. Um, I've done a lot of other startup type businesses. I hadn't launched a SaaS product uh, prior to outset of at least myself. Um, So the entrepreneurial aspect was always fun to me. Like I tell people all the time, um, I'm actually like not a technologist myself. I have no particular attachment even to software although that's where I've built my career. I just love startups. Seeing startups kind of grow into their potential is what gets me out of bed every day. Um, I think how my life has changed since being a founder um, is probably at the outset of starting the company. Again, my background is in marketing and I sort of thought I was going to sit around all day and like dream up these brilliant marketing strategies and do the marketing work that I've always wanted to do. When in reality, I do very little marketing today. Uh, I'm doing like (laughs) product management and customer support and internal operations and hiring stuff. And uh, basically marketing is like maybe 10 or 15% of what I do. Um, So I've I've gotten uh, much more well-rounded, I guess, in all aspects of running a SaaS business. (laughs) That's really really fun to hear because I think a lot of developer 
developer founders, you know, they they feel that like they don't get to develop anymore because they have to do all of the business stuff. And I think, sure. you know, many of them would imagine that you being a marketer would be able to do a lot more of your marketing, kind of use more of your marketing skill. I guess you're using your marketing skill, but like spend more time on that because that's the, the thing. Stereotypically, we don't spend time on, right? And everybody tells us we should spend exactly. time on. Um, but yep. did you feel that sh shift from the beginning or is that kind of, has it become less and less as the company has gotten bigger and, and, and more successful? <clears throat> Um, I, I would say I actually did a lot more marketing early on. Um, so, so early on we had this, uh, it's a huge, like it's a huge product. Um, it's really more like four or five products than one. So, um, when we started, we knew our, we had, uh, two co-founders who are engineers. They just needed to go head down and, and, and build essentially. Um, there wasn't a whole lot in the way of, conversation about what we were building. We knew we needed to build basic CRM, basic subscription billing, basic email marketing. Um, so while they were head down writing code, I was sort of head down laying the foundation uh, for everything that we we do do in marketing. Um, probably did that for the first two, three years that we were in business. And then after two or three years is really when the business started to take off. And then my attention immediately went towards wherever it was needed in terms of helping customers. So it was very support heavy. Um, it's still support heavy, but as of late, um, I've been doing a lot more product management. Now that we've kind of delivered the basic features of the platform, we're getting into much more difficult decisions in terms of how each of the feature sets matures and whatnot. Um, so I would say I went from pretty heavily focused on marketing to almost not focused on marketing at all. Uh, but interestingly, because I invested so much time in marketing early on, a lot of that stuff is still sort of paying dividends and why we're growing now. Um, we spent a lot of time on things like content marketing and SEO early on that frankly took a couple of years to really kick in, but they kicked in right about the time where my attention was needed elsewhere, which which was nice. That's how it should be, right? Like <laughs> later groundworks in the early days and then... Uh, yep. reap the benefits later on when you're too busy <laughs> to write that's more the, blog posts. <laughs> that's the idea. Yep. Was that intentional? Did you think like this, is, I'm not going to see the effects of this right now? Had you had the experience with that before? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I think a lot of people pay lip service to, and there's no way for me to, to prove this to you other than saying it, but um, from, from the get-go, we looked at this business as a really long-term investment. Um, and everything from what we're building to how we're building it is very, very intentional. And we are doing things and have done things since day one um, that you wouldn't do if the objective was to launch a company very quickly and then flip it or sell it or whatever. Um, we're working together because we want to work together long term. We decided on this idea because our engineering team wanted something big and meaty to sort of sink their teeth into over the course of 15 or 20 years. And we're six years in now. Um, I tell people I envision I'll at least be working on this business for 15 years. And my hope personally is I work on this for 15 or 20 years and retire. Uh, this is the the last thing I will work on is, is legitimately the mindset that I have um, and everything from a marketing perspective that we sort of prioritized from day one was what's in the long-term best interest of the company. Uh, we don't have like any quarterly goals, any arbitrary 
anything that we're trying to hit. We're just trying to say, how do we end up in a good place at this point, nine years from now? <laughs> do you have any, uh, do you have any concrete no. examples of things that you've seen others do that you haven't done? You don't have to shame or like name the others, but do you have any, like, how does it look like concretely? <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, the easiest way to distill it would be um, we've thought a lot about content. We've thought a lot about SEO. We've thought a lot about our brand and even things that, you know, when I say brand, like things that don't show up in a marketing attribution report, um, you know, they're things that we think are going to benefit the company long term, even if they're not directly driving us customers today. Um, so I, I think those sorts of things were prioritized much more so than um, things like email prospecting, for example, that can kind of give you some temporary lift, but isn't going to be a sustainable strategy that helps your business long term. I'm just, I'm just so in awe of the people like you. <laughs> like, you know, you have a 15 year perspective, and you seem. Did you ever get like an itch to do something else? <laughs> Asking for a friend. Um, that is not <laughs> me at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, y yes and no. I mean, I, I think like everybody, particularly in the entrepreneurial world, there's all kinds of things that excite me, and I can think of a thousand ideas for companies that I would like to start. Um, but I would also say that um, in a lot of ways, being able to focus solely on Outsetta has been a great thing for me uh, personally, because when we started, um, we've bootstrapped the business the whole way. And uh, what that meant practically for me and most of our team is we all started uh, working on Outsetta part time. Uh, and doing other consulting work to pay our bills and whatnot. And then as Outsetta sort of commanded our attention and was able to, to pay us, we started working on Outsetta full-time. Uh, for me personally, I worked on Outsetta for almost four years um, while working on other products concurrently or other, other just projects um, as sort of a freelancer uh, or consultant. And that was not for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I definitely... Um, just struggled to balance two or three different jobs at a time. I always felt like I wasn't giving Outsetta or the consulting work that I did, like the 100% that I wanted to. So when we got to the point where Outsetta was able to pay me a full-time salary and I was able to devote my attention to it fully, um, it was like this massive relief for me and like a big, just a big day for me personally. I was tired of juggling multiple projects at once. So the, how does it you mentioned that uh, you mentioned that you're doing this for the long run and like planning to work on this for at least 15 years. Uh, but that experience you just described sounds a little bit like it wasn't that easy. So did you consider giving up at some point? Did you, oh, did totally. you enjoy it all the way <laughs> or were, were there doubts about doing this or totally. quits early? Yeah, totally. Um, the, the way that I, describe our, our journey to really distill it. So we're six years in. Um, after three years, we had pretty much nothing. Uh, we were, I, I forget exactly what the number was, but we had a very small number of customers, um, probably like 50 customers or so after three years, very insignificant revenue. Um, and we definitely did a lot of soul searching at that point and said, you know, we've put three years into this already. We have very little to show for it. 
Um, but we, we always came back to what we were building, what we are building, we think is a better solution. We think if we can truly deliver high quality email, CRM, billing, et cetera, products in a single platform, it is a better solution. And I have a high degree of conviction still that that's the case. Secondarily, we knew that in order to get there, it was just going to take time. It was just a lot of um, features and functionality to build. We were always very clear on what needed to be built. We just had to give ourselves the time to do it. And we decided to, to stick it out. Um, in year four, we did kind of get discovered, I guess, by the no-code community. That kind of gave us an injection of customers and, and cash and gave us a little bit more of a reason to believe uh, but since then, just as the product has gotten better and better and better, so have our results, so have our growth. So I think we're, um, over the last two, three years, really like the strategy that we set out to execute on is actually coming to fruition and we're, we're feeling the rewards of the product just getting better and better. So very intentional and very patient, something I need to work on. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's it's definitely hard. <laughs> um, so you've not taken any outside funding, just to clarify that. No funding at all. Nope. No. No. <clears throat> How many people are you at this point at year six? We have five full time employees at at this point, and uh, work with a few uh, contractors here or there as well. So are those the two technical founders amongst those five, or and, yep. and you? So it's you three, and then two more. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Of the of the founders, um, I was sort of the marketing founder. Uh, one is a front end developer. One is a back end developer. Um, much of the reason we we worked together um, is we had sort of complementary skill sets to design and deliver what we needed to. Um, and then we folded in another engineer and a designer as well at this point. Cool. How's the if you if you can, I know that the listeners I uh, really enjoy kind of the discussions around like how's your, what's your founder agreement like how is the ownership divided, uh, those kinds of things that I don't really know the words, words to ask <laughs> the questions because I'm not that concerned with those things but like ownership stuff can you enlighten us how you've done that. Yeah, we have a, um, this is the part that people generally find most interesting about Outsetta. Um, so we have a very abnormal um, just way of operating the company and of compensating people across the board. Um, so first we've embraced what is called self-management. This is just sort of a organizational design where there's essentially no bosses in the business whatsoever. Um, the basic premise is we go out and hire the best people we can find. Uh, we give them all of the information about our business. So everybody that works here has access to everything. And we say, go contribute to the company wherever you're best able. Uh, and, and we sort of believe because you have all the information that we have too, that you're going to go and do the right things and focus in the areas where you can help us most. Um, that's kind of a simplified version of it, but that's how we operate. From a compensation perspective and an equity perspective, um, two things of note. The first one is we have standardized a salary at Outsetta that everybody gets paid. Uh, if you work at the business full-time, that salary is $210,000 per year, but that's based on a five-day work week. And you can choose to work a four-day work week or a three-day work week or a two-day work week or a one-day work week. 
So you're basically just stair-stepping yourself up based on how many days you want to work for cash compensation. If you work one day a week, it's $42,000 a year. Two days a week is $84,000 a year, all the way up to that $210,000 a year level. The other part of that is everybody can earn equity in the business at the exact same rate as the founders. So if you choose how many days a week you want to work for cash compensation, you can also choose how many days a week you want to work for equity compensation. And everybody's equity and or ownership in the business in general is based on how many days they have elected to work in the company earning equity. So the idea is it's overtly fair. You have the opportunity to, first of all, work whatever schedule you want. Second of all, um, earn what we think is a, a pretty good pay rate. And third of all, if you want to optimize for ownership and equity in the business, you have the ability to, to do that too. So right now, for example, using myself, I'm working three days a week for cash compensation. That's $126,000 per year. And then I work two days a week still growing my equity stake in the business Right now, I own something like 26% of Outsetta, but it's something we give uh, all employees the opportunity to sort of choose their own adventure and, and pick uh, which option works best for them. How does it work, though? Like at some point, you probably vested all the shares possible or like you, you can't grow past a certain threshold, I guess, right? So the, the way that it works is the total pool continues to grow uh, based on how many people are working days for free. So if there were 100 you know, days in total that people had worked for free and I had worked 50 of those, I would own 50% of the company. But over time, you know, people continue, continue working for free. So the overall size of the pool grows but your ownership stake is always equivalent to what percentage of that total pool you've chosen to work for equity. So it is kind of a moving target. So that, that means in the, in the long run, it, you basically own a, a smaller percentage of the company eventually, like just it, by definition. It, it depends. Um, so we've, we've had, uh, we had an employee, his name is Bernard, who is uh, one of the engineers that joined our team. Um, And yes, to your point, that that can be the case. But you also, like, we all know who's working how much for equity and who's working how much for cash compensation. And if you're in a position where you say, I want to aggressively grow my equity stake, you have the ability to, to do that. And that's something Bernard, Bernard actually did. Um, Bernard had some success at another uh, SaaS company, didn't need to optimize his, his pay rate came into Outsetta and said, I want to grow an ownership stake quite quickly, um, started working with us largely for equity. And over the course of about 18 months, um, was able to grow almost a 10% ownership stake in Outsetta because he elected to work for free. And uh, you can you can kind of look at that through through two lenses, right? The, the first lens is certainly for not you know, working at the company for a very long period of time. Uh, we did give him a significant portion of equity, um, much higher than you would typically see, you know, someone granted if they came in as a CTO or VP of engineering or anything like that. On the flip side, it was extremely beneficial to us as a company to have somebody of his skill level come into the company and work for free for 18 months. Um, so 
that that's kind of the the trade-off and uh just an example of one employee sort of choosing to work uh, more aggressively for equity but what do i get for that equity are you ever gonna sell yeah um so the the goal is is not to sell i mean i think eventually at some point in the future um certainly outside of could, could be sold there will be a day whether we're 15 years in or 20 years in or whatnot, where we all want to, to move on and a sale could potentially be one of the outcomes. Um, that is certainly not something we're optimizing for in the immediate term. The other way that that equity becomes uh, valuable is we do do profit sharing. So that's essentially uh, how you can get paid out on that equity. We take 50% of profits and we distribute them uh, based on how much equity you have in the business. I see. Interesting. I've never heard about anyone doing it like this. Have you, Benedict? No, not to that extreme, I guess. You need to do a talk on like microconf or founder summit or something like that if you haven't already, I think. <laughs> I think they Yeah. It's, <clears throat> it's an interesting model. Um there's definitely people it doesn't resonate with. Um you know, we've I can't tell you the number of emails, uh, particularly from engineers, not to bash on engineers that are, <laughs> but engineers that have just been like, I can go work at Facebook and make four hundred or five hundred thousand dollars a year. Why would I ever come work at Outseta? Um, and then you have people that are just like, you've solved income inequality. You're paying people at a high rate. You're giving people the ability to earn equity in a business that they never have at another company. And there's people that are rabid about it. So I think ultimately. Um, it's a great filter, right? The people that want to go to Facebook and make 500K are not going to be happy at Outseta <laughs> anyways. Um, yeah. and, the, and the people that love this structure are like, you're doing something unique that resonates with me and I want to work with your business because of this structure. So I think that's something I've learned as a founder in general. It's kind of like if you, if you do it your way, um, it's going to turn some people on and other people off. Uh, but it's ultimately a great filter for the type of people that you probably do want to work with. How many people or how many days do people usually work in total, both free and, and paid? We're all uh, totally, it, it's, a, it's a totally mixed bag right now. Um, we have one of, one of our co-founders, Dimitri, is still working completely for equity. Um, he had a big exit at another company, so he doesn't he doesn't need the money. Um, and then we have another employee, James, our designer. Um, he's only working one day a week for equity. He's getting paid the rest of the time, and everyone else is somewhere in the middle. So yeah, I, I was thinking more like how many days do they work in in total? Like how how many people work full time? How many people work one day? Like how's the <clears> spread? <throat> Are people taking the four day work week, or do they all uh, one? Four of us are working five days a week at this point. One of us is working four days a week. Um, but that's just what what people want. Um, I, th I think one of the things that I'm most excited about, to be honest with you, is bringing some people onto the team that are working on other projects that want to work with us a day or two a week. Um, we haven't really done that yet, but I think that's um, something we'll do quite a bit of over the course of the next year. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would love to do work like two days a week. <laughs> yeah, would be like absolutely, absolutely. Because <laughs> I realized I cannot only work on one project. Uh, even though that would probably be very beneficial sure. in like some some realm, but it's just not yep. happening. Um, <laughs> but um, 
but um, I wanted to go back because you talked a lot about your your customers, and I'm just interested in like what tech platforms are they using and what are they making? Like, do you have some extreme yeah. cases on like both sides, just both types of business and tech choices? Um, I I don't know that I have extreme examples. <laughs> no, but like from um, but, from two but, two different types of tech stacks and like two completely different oh, types of businesses. Totally, yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. So on on one hand, we have our own our own business, and we're representative of most of our SaaS customers. Um, you know, we are a full fr- full fledged SaaS product. Um, our front end is React and Angular, and our back end is .NET. Um, and you can integrate outside of with code, which is what we've done in the context of our company. On the complete other end, there's three other use cases um, that have become quite popular. Uh, one is just building sort of a traditional membership site. And what I mean by that is you have some sort of content, whether it's written content or video tutorials or whatever, um, that you're putting behind a paywall and sort of granting users access to once they sign up for a subscription. Um, so we see mostly membership sites built on Webflow or Notion, uh, but certainly all of the popular uh, website builders, Wix, Squarespace, WordPress, all that kind of stuff. Um, the third bucket would be online communities. So if you're in Slack communities, if you're in uh, Discord servers or Circle communities, um, those are kind of the three big ones within our customer base. Um, you can use Outsetter to pay for access and then grant users access to your community spaces um, and sort of use it as a community management platform. And then the third one would just be individual freelancers or consultants who sort of want a personal tech stack. Um, If you sell your services on any sort of a retainer basis, um, I actually used Outsetter for my own consulting business when um, in our our early years, uh, you can use it to accept payments and track all of your customers and send email communications and that kind of stuff. Uh, but those are the, the big use cases today. Do you have any um, cool, um, cool customers that people should go look at? Can you like name a customer that you think is, is doing, who would, who would like to be named and would be a fun use case for people to go and have a look at? Oh man, there's, there's a bunch. Um <laughs> Let's see. One, one that is kind of famous. Uh, I don't. I don't know if famous is the word, but um, we had a customer named Justin Welsh, who a lot of people know from online circles. Uh, he sort of had this career as a bigwig tech executive, if you will, um, and and got burned out and went out on his own. And he's now kind of like the poster boy for being a solopreneur. Uh, but he started an online community that he managed with without Seta, um, and like launched his he launched his community and made forty thousand dollars I think in the first twenty four hours of launching it. Um, so that was kind of a cool story that got people all excited. Um, we've got a ton of Circle communities, um, as you know, during COVID, uh, online communities just kind of exploded, um, and we have communities of all different shapes and sizes. Um, Some of them are like communities where you can go to get stock tips. We have gardening communities. We have, um, there's a pretty big one called SDR Nation, which is now one of the bigger uh, communities for sales development reps who are sort of building a career in sales. Uh, That's kind of an interesting one. Um, And then SaaS businesses of, of every variety. 
Yeah. So when you were saying you were um, going after SaaS first, but then you you pivoted more to the no-code space, did you choose a niche within kind of the no-code space, like a specific audience? Um, I, I would say people told me about no-code um, like one or two years into us building out Seta, and I kind of shrugged it off, and I was wrong. <laughs> um, what, what ended up happening is... Um, it, largely driven by Webflow, to, to be honest with you. And I think Webflow is really um, within no code, sort of the poster child for no code in general. Um, and Webflow is this, in many ways, amazing website builder, but something that they did not offer um, was any sort of subscription payment functionality, and more importantly, any sort of authentication tools. So there were all kinds of people trying to build websites that required authentication on top of Webflow. And to be honest, they didn't really have any good good options. Um, that changed. Uh, a company called MemberStack came around. They're a competitor of, of ours to this day. And they made it really easy to integrate payments and authentication with a Webflow site and just kind of exploded. They grew very, very quickly kind of on the back of Webflow and on the back of being this complementary software product. And once that happened, a bunch of people kind of showed up in my inbox saying, hey, Outseto offers exactly what MemberStack offers in terms of signup forms and authentication functionality, but you've also wrapped it with this CRM and this help desk and this email uh, series of email tools. This would be huge if uh, you could go and create a partnership with Webflow. So we did that, and that's where a lot of uh, our early growth in the no-code community came from. So how does that work? Because I remember MemberStack... And I believe you too. So you hide the content that you're not allowed to see with JavaScript or do you hide it like properly hide it? <laughs> it's hidden with JavaScript. Um, yes. So certainly if you're, uh, you, you know, if you have credit card information or healthcare records or anything like that, you wouldn't want to rely on our content protection. Um, but we do have sort of some uh, backup means of protecting your content too. So if you disable JavaScript, for example, we can detect that and just redirect you to the company's homepage so you can't actually read any of their content. Uh, but it is not, you know, locked down as it would be in a, a vault at a bank per se. <laughs> but do you think like, because that's one of those things that I think like most developers would be like, well, I need, like it needs to be properly hidden. Otherwise people will get access to this because it's usually content. I guess if it's a membership site, it's like a course or sure. it could be, you know, insightful article or something that you're supposed to, that you're trying to gate. And I think most developers yeah. would be like, well, it needs to be properly gated. Um, but these people are getting paid, right? Even but though it's most not of us <laughs> probably wouldn't be using Webflow anyways. Because, yeah, that's right. true. But like, if you, if, you know, if a, code yourself. Yeah, if yeah, yeah. If a friend, I mean, more like if a friend came to you and like was really concerned, you know, about this or like asking you for help as a developer, you would be like very much like, well, this isn't proper gating uh, of that content. But yeah. after seeing these solutions and seeing them in the wild for a, a long time, and especially on my phone. I realize how effective they are because at least, mm -hmm. you know, my desktop browser, it's quite easy to disable JavaScript. Like I've, I've seen non-tech users do that to like get to their newspaper articles and stuff, like if they really want to, but when you're on your sure. phone, that is just like, at least, I don't know, maybe I don't know how, but <laughs> it's, it's more hard. Um, so it seems like people, and also it seems like people are willing to pay if they really like the creator. So the whole kind of, having it be in a proper vault is not 
so important as it might seem for a tech person or for a developer? Yeah, I I think of it in a couple different different ways, and I have this conversation with uh, prospects all all the time. Um, one is if if someone is motivated enough to like hack into your content, th- th- there's always going to be some route. Uh, if if someone is really motivated to try to you know get access to something that they shouldn't, like a screenshot um, they, somebody sent them, <laughs> they they probably they probably could. But I, I think it comes down more to first of all the sensitivity of of what it is that you're you're gating. That is first and foremost what you need to consider. The second bit I would say is really important is just who your audience is. Um, certainly talking to, to you two, you recognize that you can disable JavaScript. Uh, but I would argue there are a lot of audiences that have no clue what JavaScript is, let alone that you can disable it. So you need to kind of think about what it is that, that you're protecting and ultimately make a smart decision. Um, but then it's also just like, what percentage of people are actually motivated to go out there and try to access this content in a way that it wasn't intended to be accessed, that's relatively low. What is the actual vulnerability in terms of somebody maybe doing that? If you have sensitive data, there's a real vulnerability there. If you don't, maybe you lost out on a $20 subscription fee. So those are the sorts of things um, you need to consider. And the other uh, thing that we sort of say loud and clear, and it's not just on this topic, if you're using Outseta, you are making some sacrifices, whether it's around content protection or the other features that we offer. MailChimp, or maybe MailChimp's not the right example. ConvertKit is a better email marketing tool than Outseta. Zendesk is a better help desk than Outseta. <laughs> HubSpot has better marketing automation features than Outseta. But our argument is if we can give you all this stuff in a single platform and help you launch quickly, is the value of that for an early stage business greater than having you know this perfect security and all these best in class tools um, integrated in a perfect way where you spent weeks doing that work? We think so, um, and and that's kind of something every customer has to judge for themselves. Do the benefits of this platform you know ultimately outweigh the alternatives? But what I like is that you do support both, so. I I could launch something on Webflow, just hide it with JavaScript and then validate whatever business I'm creating. And then if needed, I could Absolutely. create a more custom solution, but keep all my data, I guess, in the same service. Like I don't have to then get the, the people out of your service and into another service or out of somebody else's service and into another service, which is which is a That's, cool premise. <clears throat> That's exactly right. And the other the other thing we tell our customers with regards to this whole conversation is like, we're trying to get your product out to market as fast as possible and get revenue coming in the door. Let's create good problems. If you have a business that <laughs> takes off and you're doing millions in revenue and you need to lock down security and you know all these other things, all of our most successful customers will outgrow Outseta. Like that is something that we talked about early on. It is in a lot of ways why Outseta, to be honest with you, is a bad business idea. <laughs> <laughs> and why, and why uh, like venture VCs not going to be particularly interested in Outset for this reason. Basically, what we said is we want to take companies from day zero to five or $10 million in revenue. But if you get to that point, you're going to be hiring VPs. They're going to want to use you know their own best in class technology products that they're comfortable with. You're going to grow out of this product and that's fine. 
we want to get you there. So funny story. I was looking at some uh, contracting websites. Um, I do that every now and then in Norway to just see what's what's up. And and one of the persons were looking for a developer that could help him implement Alcera, which I thought was pretty <laughs> fun That's to music see. Music to my ears. Yeah, I like that. I said right. like I think it was like last week, and I was like, oh, like now that you know that feels like this ran like random i feel like person on on a norwegian yeah. contracting site was like yeah i need a setup and webflow and there was something like i think he wanted to move off webflow and get something more custom um but he was using outsetta and needed somebody that had knowledge uh with that so it's a it's a really good honestly like i i mean this genuinely not to toot our own horn but that's a a good sign of like tr just traction and brand awareness when you start to see that showing up in job descriptions and whatnot so i'm psyched to hear that yeah it's pretty cool what aspect is like finding finding job posts where they want help with like integrating and then next level or the level before i don't know the challenge sure it's like please help me build a competitor to <laughs> Or an alternative to outsider. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the other type of validation you can address. <laughs> yeah, where the spec is the the the, yeah. the feature page of your product, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're I think we're coming to an end, but I always like to ask what a typical work week looks like or a typical week. You can include your life if you want to. Sure. Um, I'll start with the the work part and then I'll fold in the family part. Um, for me, one of the, one of the best things I did this last year, um, something I've realized about myself is I'm sort of late to automate things, um, or protect my time sometimes when I probably shouldn't be. So just in this past year, um, I started scheduling all of my meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Previously, I literally had a completely open calendar and any of our customers could book a meeting with me at any time, Monday through Friday. Uh, and I did that for several years and just burned out from being on Zoom all day, every day. Uh, so I, meet, I moved all my meetings to Tuesdays and Thursdays. Tuesdays and Thursdays are um, very meeting heavy for me still. Um, some of them are like sales demos, but most of it is actually helping customers with implementation of the product. Uh, so that's what I'm doing those days. We have a single meeting as a team each week. It's uh, Monday mornings at, at 10 a.m., but that's the one time where we all kind of get together and say hello and talk about what we're working on for the week. Outside of that, I have Monday, Wednesday, and Friday um, sort of completely for independent work at this point in time. Um, as I said, not that much of that is marketing. I would say, let's, let's call it 20% is marketing at this point. Uh, probably 40% is support and probably close to 40% has been product management as of late. Um, so those are sort of the things that I am working on. I tend to devote my mornings to support and try to answer, you know, all the support tickets that are in our support ticketing inbox when I start my day. And then I use the afternoons either for, you know, marketing work or backlog grooming or whatever I'm doing from a product management perspective. Um, all of that aside, I generally work 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, I have two twin boys at home that are three years old. Uh, so 
they also don't sleep, so neither do neither neither do I. Uh, I am sort of constantly tired. I go to bed very very early these days. Um, I'm usually in bed by legitimately nine o'clock. I uh, I get up. I feed them breakfast at an ungodly hour of the morning, uh, and then go to work eight to four. Get out of work, and uh, you know I've got kids getting home from daycare and feeding them. Uh, dinner and getting them ready for bed and whatnot. So between Outsetta and uh, dad duty, I'm I'm pretty busy these days. <laughs> but you're planning to travel. Didn't I see that on Twitter? I just remembered. Yep. Yep. So uh, pr prior to, to kids and, and still, I'm a travel junkie. Um, that's like really what gets me out of bed and excited about life every day. Um, and my wife and I with little kids, it's, you know, very hard to sort of actually be a, a nomad, if you will. Um, so I definitely would not describe us as nomadic, but we basically came to the decision that we wanted to continue to travel. We were going to do it regardless of having little kids. And six months out of every 24 months, we are going to go live somewhere else. So I'm coming up on I doing this, this for the, the third time now. Um, we've done it twice before, uh, but as of May 1st, uh, I'm going to be in Greece for three months. Uh, I think Scotland for a month after that. Um, and then we're actually looking somewhere in Scandinavia. And my summer likely. house, obviously. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then I think we're doing uh, Nova Scotia before we head back to, to California. So uh, basically May through next November, we'll be traveling, but having little kids, we stay each place for at least a month at a time. So we can have some semblance of a routine and whatnot. Yeah. And playgrounds, uh, which is, yeah, where you're like, where are the playgrounds? <laughs> like different cities, like, where yeah. are they? I can't yeah. see them. <laughs> I need them. Um, maybe a yeah. personal question, but like, what do you do for childcare when you're traveling or yeah. do you both work while traveling? Yeah. So this is one, admittedly, we haven't uh, gotten gotten perfectly right yet, but I think we've sort of learned a little bit about what works and what doesn't. Um, so the last time we did this, we were in Hawaii, which is a very weird time zone. Um, and we did a couple things that time that worked out well. One was I did downshift to a four-day work week for the, the time that we were there. So I took Wednesdays off um, so I could basically watch the kids and give my wife a break midweek. She was watching the kids mostly Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, secondarily, when we were there, because of the time zone and because I have meetings, I had to work really weird hours anyways. So I was working like 6 in the morning to 2 p.m., um, which actually worked pretty well because our kids take a nap from 12 to 2. So my wife basically watched them in the morning, and then I was out by the time they got up for a nap. So we kind of tag teamed them uh, in that way. And, and certainly going down to a four day work week did help. Um, this upcoming trip, we're going to be in Europe. So we're going to be in a totally different time zone. And the short answer is I'm going to have a lot of time off in the mornings to watch the kids. They're then going to go down for a nap. My wife is going to watch them mostly in the afternoon. And then I'm going to work like after dinner once they go to sleep for, for quite a while as well. Um, and we do try to also, if we can, find some local um, child care. As you would expect, if you're just going somewhere for a month, it's very hard to you know, find someone that you feel really comfortable with that can just kind of leave your kids with and walk away. So we, we certainly 
Uh, haven't done that, but we are returning this time to an island in Greece that we've been to before where we know some people and they have referred us to people on this island who can watch the kids and it's not going to be like a complete, um, a com- it's, it's not going to be daycare, but it's going to be, you know, someone who can come watch the kids for three or four hours. So my wife and I can go out to dinner, or go exercise or do whatever we want to do. Because just on that note, since even though we're going along here, um, cause I was like, sure. kids, like I'll travel with kids and, you know, be still be a nomad. Yeah. And then I was like, but who are watching, who's watching this kid? Um, and that's yeah. when I also realized yeah. that we have a language barrier. Like we haven't taught Lillian English, which we, we, we wanted to, but we haven't. And until she sure. was like two or three, like she wouldn't mind. But now she's like, she doesn't want to be watched by somebody she doesn't understand. Like she gets really anxious about that. So that was like one of those things that I didn't, like I should have like theoretically known, but I just like, I saw these people traveling, you know, with their kids and I was like, Oh, there was somebody else watching that child. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize that, but luckily, you know, now she can actually sustain herself for like three or four hours. Like if she gets stuff to do and I can work yep. alongside her. So things have changed, but like, and on that point she stopped napping at three. So just telling you things might yes, change. We are, we are- we are we are petrified of that, but it is uh, highly highly possible that that happens, and that throws all this for a loop. So we'll, we'll yes cross that bridge when we the get there. The sacred midday nap was awesome, yep. and for sure it goes away at some point, unfortunately. Yep. <laughs> but yep. um, I guess that's it. Do you have any questions that are not about kids to wrap us up, Benedict? Or um, the only thing is, where can people find you online if they want to know more, follow up, uh, just follow you? Yeah. Uh, you can check out our, our website. It's just outsetto.com. It's the word outset and then an A on the end. Um, or you can follow me. Uh, Twitter is probably the best place to find me. It's um, Jeff at Jeff T. Roberts, but I am a G off. So it's G-E-O-F-F, uh, which is the British spelling of the name. And check the description for all the links. And we'll see you around the interwebs. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Mm-hmm.